We're ready to begin what promises to be very lively, very helpful, and very practically focused conversation with you and out loud in front of you between Dr. Moeller and Dr. Holland uh, about some of the practical implications of the things that we've been saying. Uh, as you know, um, we are committed to a high view of God. Uh, we are committed to a high view of His Word. And the very things that we've been hearing um, last night and uh, this morning are the very kinds of things where we feel now, I think, a very fresh way, the implications of, of these convictions weighing on us and pressing in on us. Uh, now we're forced to ask the, okay, now what? What does this look like in a, in a very practical and in a very, very specific context? What is my role if I'm a pastor? What is my role if I'm an elder or a deacon or um, maybe a, a school principal? Uh, what's my role if I'm a healthcare professional? There are lots of issues encroaching right now about which we have very defined theological convictions and about which we can't remain silent. But then what do we do? That's really the goal of this Q&A. And so what I want you to do is just trust that you have your questions ready. I'm going to sort of lead off with a question. If you want to make your way to one of these three microphones, we'll just sort of go in order here uh, as you stand. Uh, if you don't have questions, um, I got a ton of them, so I'll just keep feeding them. But if you have a question, why don't you go ahead and make your way to the, to the microphone now and get in position so that we can get ready for you. Uh, and we want to just take the next 45 minutes and just talk out loud about some of the specifics. And so I want to invite Dr. Moeller and Dr. Holland to the uh, stage and um, just take their seat up here. And I want to uh, also just maybe begin by throwing this question out there. Um, when it comes to political activism, when it comes to the issue of not merely just legislative type um, actions, but when it comes to abortion clinics, when it comes to things like Obamacare, when it comes to you going to the voting booth, what, what is the balance really, and this is a question for you guys, what is the balance practically as it relates to the role of the Christian functioning in the public square? How specific should, should the leaders be at urging their people to take action? And what does that action look like? That would be a, just a great help to us as we think through our responsibility in light of what we've already been challenged with. Yeah, I think the first thing is to say the pastor's responsibility is to preach the whole counsel of God, to preach the Word. And uh, this is why I'm so committed to verse-by-verse verse exposition of the Scripture, and, and, and not only verse-by-verse, verse, but uh, preaching through entire books of the Bible, and preaching every verse in every book, because that way you are not preaching what seems to you fitting. You're preaching what God has provided to feed His people. And, uh, and yet, as you're doing that, you do know that at times, I mean, for instance, if, if you're going to spend, you, you know, 24 years in the book of Romans, um, and, and there, are, <laughs> there are people who have done that, very similar, that, uh, that you're going to have people who are going to be growing up, you're going to have issues that are going to come along, and people at different, and this is why you need a teaching ministry of the church that isn't just your Sunday morning worship. Mm -hmm. That's central, but it's not just that. You want to be training the fathers to be training their children, and, and you, you want to be training uh, folks, uh, I mean, you want to be making disciples, equipping them for every good work, and, and that's also the Scripture. So you're going to be looking at how to do this. From time to time, you're going to have to address issues, or, or you're going to fail in your job. There are going to be issues that are going to be so crucial, so much on the forefront of, of consideration. Christians are going to be wondering and asking, how must I as a Christian respond to this? And, and you're, as a pastor, going to need to speak to that. Now, here's, here's the crucial issue. 
what comes from the pulpit? That's the first question. What comes from the pulpit must be the preaching of the Word of God. Nothing should deter you from preaching the Word of God. Uh, th- th- that is what you are there for. That is the one thing you are called to do, preach the Word in season and out of season. That certainly has to relate to politics as much as anything else. Whether it's politically in season or out of season, you just preach the Word. But the church and the pastor's leadership, and I'll speak to pastors here, is based, first of all, on preaching, but it's larger than preaching. So, for instance, on Obamacare, uh, I would not preach about that in any, in any way. I probably can't imagine really making a reference to it in a Sunday sermon. Uh, that just this wouldn't happen. On the other hand, I will file suit against the Obama administration on Monday morning. Uh, and, and that's a crucial distinction. And, and, and that's a part of being in the world and not of it. And I would want my people to know exactly why. You know, one of the things I say to people is, if, if on issues like marriage and the sanctity of human life, if your church is not highly convictional on those issues, you can't make them convictional the day before the election, even if you turned your pulpit over to nothing but that. But if you're preaching the Word in season and out of season, if you're equipping the saints for the work of ministry, if, if you are, are equipping disciples for every good work, then they're going to know how to translate the convictions that they have learned from Scripture into the issues of everyday life, sort of. Because we all need to admit that sometimes in a fallen world, in the political context, it's hard to know exactly how to think through some things. If only every issue were black and white. And if only we had the choice between a perfect candidate and a clearly imperfect candidate. That's not the way it works. So there are times in a fallen world when you need Christians to get their heads together and say, all right, we've been taught of Christ by the Scriptures. We are, we are, are the people who belong to Christ and are obligated as salt and light in the world. How in the world are we going to translate this? When it comes to some of those really hard questions, whether it's a school district issue or a, whether it's a statewide issue or a countywide issue or a national issue, that Christians need to get together and talk about some of these things. Now, that's not what I would do in worship. I, I, I wouldn't give the worship time to that, but I'd make sure that there was an opportunity within the life of the church to think through these things together and prayerfully decide. You know, e- even if we're not deciding together what we're going to do, we are understanding together what we're responsible to think. And, uh, and then we're just going to have to prayerfully uh, seek to deploy Christians for maximum glory of God in the world. This isn't an easy question. It's going to get a lot harder. It's going to get even harder when people just might go to jail actually for preaching the Bible. But so long as, uh, as we have the pulpit, we better exploit it to the fullest in teaching and preaching the Word of God. We must center in the gospel. Again, our, our, we, God did not call you to convince people of Christian values. He called you to preach the gospel. The gospel has implications, but those implications are, first of all, for gospel people. You don't expect non-Christians to think like Christians or to act like Christians, but you do expect the church people, you do expect those who are Christ's redeemed people, increasingly, to be conformed to the image of Christ. In the world but not of it means those people being conformed to the image of Christ are going to have some difficult decisions to make, they're going to have to think through some issues, and somewhere in the fellowship of the saints there needs to be a safe place to have that discussion. It's not the main thing that comes from the pulpit, but what comes from the pulpit builds the superstructure upon which those conversations take place. I may have muddied the water more than anything. What, I mean, let, can I, let me follow up a question. Yeah. So, um, believing what you said about the sanctity of life this morning, 
Right. And uh, what's, what is the implication for us? Do we go stand in line at the abortion clinics? Do we, do we write articles for the, the paper? What, what, what's the, the takeaway in t- beyond raising our children in those values? Okay, so let me answer that honestly. I've never stood in a picket line. I've never been involved in abortion counseling. Uh, my wife has extensively been involved in abortion counseling. My wife's been on the board of a crisis pregnancy center, and even now is. And she and I together are helping to fund building the first crisis pregnancy center in, uh, in a Caribbean nation, I won't name, that doesn't even have one. And, uh, and yet, my real excitement about the crisis pregnancy center is because it is one of the most incredible opportunities for evangelism I've ever seen in my life. Um, because women who are struggling with big questions like that is one of the biggest questions any woman will ever face. She's actually dealing with bigger questions than that, and she knows that in her heart. But, again, that's not a substitute. That's not the church. And, 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 and a crisis pregnancy center is not the church, and a church is not a crisis pregnancy center, but by and large, it's Christians who are working in them. Because, as I said today, secular worldview can't bear the weight of human dignity. Only the Christian worldview can, and so you're more likely to find Christians there. Um, I have been on the board, uh, as you know, of organizations that have been very heavily involved in this in terms of public policy, but that's not what I talk about on Sunday morning, and that's not what I'm training pastors to do in preaching. I am saying you do have a responsibility, and each one of you in your own way is going to have to try to figure out with fear and trembling how best to, uh, how best to accomplish that. So, yeah, I, I would want members of my church to be willing to go to jail in order to speak up for the in order to speak for the unborn. I think that's a great gospel testimony. Why are you willing to go to jail? Well, there should have been far more American Christians for the cause of the gospel ready to go to jail uh, during the civil rights movement, uh, simply because we need to be the ones who are testifying to the fact that any injury on the basis of race is an insult to the God who is redeeming one redeemed race out of all the nations. Uh, so, in other words, there, there is a political responsibility. We don't, again, I privilege preaching above everything else. And the only thing that takes place in preaching is the preaching of God's Word. And it's applied as best and most faithfully one can do. But uh, you do that and you're going to be preaching on these things. You're gonna, you preach through Romans. Try, again, we started out here at Sunday morning in Romans 1. Try preaching through Romans 1 without stepping on someone's cultural toes including your own. You're not going to be there. And, uh, you know, if you're preaching through the book of Hebrews, as I just finished a multi-year exposition through the the book of Hebrews, uh, I would have thought that if there's any one book that's almost all theology, and until the end, not a whole lot of application, you know, you get to the end and all of a sudden you realize, boy, there's a whole lot more here in the last three chapters than I thought that is absolutely speaking to how Christians live in a world like this. It's there. Let me ask a follow-up question, uh, just if I could, uh, to try to go from black and white to color. Mm-hmm. We, we live in a context right here where the development across the street from us is um, uh, going to, in five years, look entirely different. Let's, let's just throw a hypo- hypothetical scenario. Planned Parenthood opens up a um, uh, shop right across the street from us. Right. What's, what's my responsibility as a pastor? What's our church's responsibility? What goes too far? What, what would that look like if that happened across the street to us? You want to speak to that? <laughs> I'm ready. You're on a roll. 
I would say that it affords a very tragic but important responsibility and opportunity for your church to say we have a message of life to give in the face of a message of death. And it's not just life for the unborn child, though that is the first thing we're going to have to say. But far more importantly, it's about the life that God intended for every single human being, born and unborn, which is the promise of the gospel. But to have the culture of death, which Planned Parenthood is, and and we could go into detail that would curdle milk about what actually goes on there. I mean, they actually profit by abortion. They make money by killing babies. They were founded by a woman who had a race-based understanding of eugenics, more children from the fit, less from the unfit, it is a, who also wanted to destroy the, the, the bonds of marriage as a way of liberating women from both childhood, uh, childbearing, and, and I mean, it's, it's, it, it's the culture of death in its quint, almost quintessential form. Um, but when, when it's there, I, I mean, what goes beyond? Well, anything illegal goes beyond, at least at this point. We should be willing to suffer imprisonment for the cause of the gospel but we also uphold all the righteous laws. The same police that protect them protect you. Uh, but you've got a superior message, so I, w- I would out-message them for sure. I think one of the most incredible things that Christians are doing, Christian churches uh, uh, through their ministries and Christians in, uh, in other organizations are, uh, are, are putting um, crisis pregnancy centers right across the street from Planned Parenthood. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, in Louisville, they, are, they're, they're, they, they face each other. You know, and you talk about two worlds, uh, and you, you see women who are, you know, which, which way do they go? And it's such a tragedy to see them go the wrong way. But on the other hand, you know, th- there it is. Christians are saying, look, this is like the first century when Rome was uh, sacrificing its babies and, and uh, giving itself over to all these things. We, 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 we don't go in and break up their orgies, right? But we do make very clear God has a different intention, and this should not happen. It's like Luther said in his Invocavit sermon, one of my favorite of Luther's sermons, his, his students were going in and they were tearing up the altars that, that the rich German nobility had for private masses in their homes. And Luther's students are fired up with the fire of their eyes. And I know what theology students look like when they get excited, okay? Um, and, uh, and they got excited, and they were, they were taking sledgehammers, breaking into these houses and tearing down the altars. And Luther said, you could pull them away from those altars by their hair, but they'll find their way back. So you preach the Word and let the Word do the work. But he meant you preach the Word directly at the problem. He didn't mean you go back and preach Second Chronicles and act as if this isn't going on. He said, you preach the Word, and of course for Luther, Word and Gospel are the same thing. You preach it to them head on. You tell them what they're doing is idolatry. You tell them what they're doing is a sacrilege. It's a slander to the work and to the character of Christ. You lay it on, but as Luther said, how did the Reformation happen? While I, slept, while I preached the Word and while I slept, he added other things Baptists won't say, God did it. Uh, but, I mean, that, that's what we do. And, and, and so people look at that. When Luther says, you, pre- you preach the Word, then you sleep, and God did it. Yeah, when Luther will say that's exactly what you do, then Luther would also say, yeah, but the Reformation also happened because, uh, you know, you, you had printer, this brave printer pr- printing up the, my treatises. You had this brave printer putting the Bible in the German language. So, in other words, there's action going on there. But it's the preaching of the Word that alone reaches the heart. Yes, that's a very… That's a, 
yes is not the answer to your question. Yes, that's an important question. We are at the intersection of enduring questions and new technologies. Makes these things somewhat difficult sometimes to think through very carefully. So let's go back to the beginning. We do not define human dignity on the basis of certain attributes. If we do that, then we have people who are more human and people who are less human. We have people who have greater dignity and lesser dignity, and we're, we're right back into Hitler. We can't do that. And, and we know that we're not doing that just because it leads to bad places. We're not doing that because the Bible says every single human being is made in the image of God. That is how they are made. That's not a status they achieve. So a deaf person is of the same um, worth and dignity as someone who hears. A, a lame person is someone who walks. Uh, someone who's not gifted in sports than someone who is. Uh, the, the, the one who's a member of the, uh, of the Mensa with a giant IQ is no more human, has no more human dignity, has, his life is no more, her life no more sacred than, than the one who, is, uh, who has Down syndrome. That, that, we, we know that. We have to keep telling ourselves that because our eyes will lead us to make other judgments. We will naturally think the people that are different from us are less than we are. We'll naturally think that someone lacking this capacity must be less human. That is not the case, and we have to be the one people on the planet. Again, the Christian worldview alone can bear human dignity. This is one of those lessons why. So the person who is in a situation where they are in a coma, either uh, traumatically or drug-induced, or for that matter, inexplicable, they're still human. Now, after Genesis 3, a part of natural human life is death, Okay? So death is the enemy, but it's also a part of natural human life. We're going to die. So we are not trying to forestall and deny the reality of death, right? So we are not obligated at all points to do everything possible to forestall clinical death. If, if, if that were our responsibility, we couldn't let anyone die at home of natural causes. You see what I mean? We would, everyone would be hooked up to a machine, and we call them alive, like a horror movie. Now, we don't, we don't believe that. The big problem is, though, that the medical profession and, and, and economic issues and other things are moving in the direction of saying, okay, so once a certain capacity is lost, they are as good as dead. Interestingly, one of the hardest things in terms of biomedical ethics right now is on organ harvesting because organ harvesting is in this gray area where you have to keep the body alive but have to declare the person to be dead. Well, that's really spooky. And so you have technical death. You have legal death. To answer your question, a person who's in a persistent vegetative state is still fully human. And if indeed, and, and by the way, one of the things we were always told is that's, ir, that's re, uh, not reversible. We now know that in some cases it is reversible. But once you decide to begin a treatment at that point, then you really don't have the right to end that treatment. That's why with the Terry Schiavo case, uh, just removing that feeding tube meant that you were actually killing her. Uh, and that's a different decision. She wasn't brain dead. No one said she was brain dead. She had a cessation of conscious brain activity. That's very different. Any one of us could be in an accident tonight and end up with a cessation of conscious brain activity, but I sure hope they don't call you dead unless you are. Brain dead means absolutely no brainstem activity in, in, in terms especially of core functions like breathing. 
So you look at that and you realize these, these are difficult issues, but they're, they're actually not so difficult in most cases. In other words, the clear principle is you do not have to avail yourself of every treatment and technology, but you can't deny the treatment or technology on the basis of the fact that the person doesn't deserve it. Does that make sense? So you don't have to remain hooked up to a, a, a machine forever if what that means is forestalling natural death. Uh, for instance, I, 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 I knew a woman who was uh, in her 80s, and she'd been on dialysis for 50 years. And she had reached, the, well, uh, 30 years, I guess, actually. She was 50 when she went on dialysis. She was reaching the point where the dialysis wasn't even working anymore, and it was excruciatingly painful. She did not take a pill to kill herself. That would have been immoral. She did not ask a doctor to put her out of her misery. She did say, I'm done with dialysis. This is no longer keeping me alive. It is merely forestalling a natural death. Uh, nothing is working. They can't save me. She was, not, she was a believing Christian. She trusted the Lord, and she said, I, I realize now that this is... I, to stay on this dialysis, that's very different than saying, okay, we're going to turn off the machines because this person no longer qualifies as human. Does that make sense? And, uh, in college, I had a, we had an annual visit from a street preacher that would point at various students and call them all kinds of sinful names and very offensive, and that's kind of how the left stereotypes us. Um, what obligation do we have to tell content unbelievers that they are sinners? And if yes, how do we best do that? Uh, are you talking about it in a, in a public context, like a street preaching context, or in your neighbors and friends? Any context. Any context? Yeah, I think the, the provocation to see uh, uh, your, your sin uh, biblically begins in Romans 2 with your conscience. Um, now, you can crush your conscience and sear your conscience. And uh, in Romans 1, you back up three times. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Um, so... I, I think that the, the conscience remains alive in an unbeliever until they so deny it that they, they lose the ability or the willingness to you know, make right and wrong decisions. But that's a rare case, uh, frankly. I think that uh, Romans 2 says that they, they can sense that. Um, and I think then you go back into Romans 1, and it's the gospel that, that brings that alive. Everything in, in, in an unbeliever's life has to come to grips with the fact that you need sin paid for before a holy God for, before whom you're going to stand. It's all judge. It's appointed a man once to die, then the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. And to face Ecclesiastes, the last verse, you're going to face the judgment. It's to bring them to the reality that um, their conscience, which bears witness against the sins that they're, they're doing, has an accounting. It has a, a backstop. It's not going to go on forever bring them the understanding, but it all comes back to the fact of there is a man who died in your place. What are you going to do with that? Which raises all sorts of questions, whether they're right or I mean, whether they uh, admit the depth of their sin or the... And remember, not everyone sins at the same, um, to the same degree. Not everyone is the axe murderer. Some guy is that you have the, the, the moralistic Mormon who's no more saved than the axe murderer, but that doesn't... that his understanding of sin... 
uh, is self-justifying rather than going the other way. Interesting story. When I, when I was in seminary, I, I couldn't find anybody to preach to. Um, and so they gave me an assignment to go out to Wayside Prison and preach to the prisoners. Um, and even out there, I was overwhelmingly alarmed in talking to those men how they had a system of, of degradation of sin. I was talking to a guy in, in, uh, about his sin, just as we were talking about, and you need a savior. And he says, you need to talk to that guy. I robbed two banks and shouldn't have been even caught at the second one. That's what he told me. Should have got away. But that guy actually raped an older woman. So even in prison, they have, I'm not as bad as this guy. And to take the comparison to a holy God who... Re- I mean, have you really understood that it requ- it's required to be perfect to go to heaven? I mean, try that on anyone. What do you have to be to go to heaven? Perfect. That's why we need an alien righteousness imputed to us that was Christ's perfection. He takes our imperfect sin on the cross. And it's putting that comparison back on the person of Christ, on the moral character of God revealed in Scripture. That's what's going to, I think, show someone where, where their sin is. Yelling at them, you know, I've, if you want to yell, just yell with Scripture and be gracious. But even the Lord's bondservant is kind, kind patient, not argumentative. Um, there's no excuse for being obnoxious with gospel truth. There's a bigger problem with that. And whoever it was, they disappeared, but they were there. Uh, so I'm going to speak to the microphone. Uh, the bigger so the problem with that... Right, right uh, okay, good, right. thank you. The, uh, tr- trust me, I've had plenty of experience this on television. Yes, I know you're there. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the, the big issue is this. When he says you are, you're a fornicator, you're an adulterer, you're a... Uh, a sodomite, that's a favorite word that a lot of people use without actually knowing what it means, which I'm not going to fully define at the moment. Uh, but uh, you know, when they say that, what are they implying about themselves? That I'm none of these things. Yeah. Scriptural perspective is entirely different. Paul is not talking about, this is where we were yesterday, he's not talking about other people in Romans 1. He's talking about himself and his family and the church. And, and all humanity. This is, we are sinners. Luther's last words, veris in pelternesis virum, we are sinners. It is true. Um, you know, we, we are just redeemed sinners. Someone tweeted me last night when I said the church should have the sign out front that said, you know, former perverts are us, or redeemed perverts, actually, I said are us. And I'm getting hate mail, thank you, from people all day saying, I'm not a pervert. What are you talking about? Well, you know, the first person who says I'm not a pervert is a pervert. <laughs> all right, now, I was playing around a little with the word, but perversion means to distort the, the right reality. That's what we do. That's Romans 1. That is exactly, exchange the truth of God for a lie, you know, on and on and on. So in other words, the problem with that kind of, of, kind of you know, the district attorney approach, you're indicted, you're indicted, you're indicted, is that it acts like we, we, we don't, we're not indicted. We're all indicted. We are sinners, it is true. Um, and, and so you take the example of the Apostle Paul and his preaching. Look at, he did not go to Athens in Acts 17 and get up and say, you're pedophiles, which they were, and, you know, you're this and you're that. Instead, he preached the gospel, but then he made very clear what sin is. And and, and as a matter of fact, you know, he kept saying, you ought not to do. He's planted a law. He's given, you know, in in other words, so he he has appointed one man, you know, so the gospel's all there, but that's just not a very helpful thing. Now, the opposite is true, however, when you're asked, is this sin? And you have to say yes. So, in other words, just getting, you don't need a street preacher getting up and yelling, I'm not against street preaching, but 
for that matter, you don't need pulpit preaching in which someone's getting up saying, you're sinners. We're sinners. That's why we need the gospel. Yeah, no, I, I think I understand now. Thank you. Were you here this morning when I spoke? Okay. Okay. So I, I talked this morning about the redefinition, the medical redefinition of contraception. Yeah, what I was talking about then was that we even have to define terms because uh, contraception sounds to people like it prevents what we would think of conception. And as the medical establishment used conception in the 50s before the pill, which was the same thing as fertilization, partly because they didn't have much of a medical scheme of understanding at that point to make much differentiation between um, uh, fertilization and then the eventual implantation in the uterine wall. But when you hear people say that's a contraceptive or even uh, some, some uh, 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 terminology like emergency contraceptives, that doesn't necessarily mean it's working to block like barrier contraceptive, the, the sperm from eating the egg, or to prevent fertilization by some other means. It could be something else. Uh, and, and then, of course, you have, uh, you have early abortifacient, explicitly abortifacient drugs, you know, the plan B kind of thing. And, and so it, it, it's complicated. There's, it's not a simple thing. I've written a lot about this, and so I'll, I'll make this short. At my website, you'll find a lot. I've participated in two book projects on this. I, I think evangelicals have to be real careful on this because we haven't been thinking about this at all, and it's to our shame. And uh, just remember that contraception was not a big issue until the 1960s. It wasn't a big issue because there wasn't a technology that, that was attractive to people and a widespread and, and trustworthy. The pill, the oral contraceptive, really raised the issue. And if you go back to the 1930s and 40s, virtually every Protestant denomination was against artificial, what they called it, artificial birth control. Uh, the, the first denomination to break was the Church of England. Uh, and, and then others uh, made their accommodation with it as well. The development of the pill, I can date it pretty easily because I was born about the time the pill was. Uh, Newsweek, uh, Lisa Miller of Newsweek put out a book on the history of the pill, and I'm the evangelical, she would probably say crank in it, uh, arguing that it is a moral issue from the very beginning. Evangelicals just thought it was a Catholic issue because Catholics were against it. Well, it's because Catholics had a natural law reasoning to oppose it. Evangelicals, we thought everything that came in a pill was, form was good. I mean, you know, penicillin, you know, whatever, it's a pill, great, it'll solve a problem. Well, clearly, that's not a good worldview. And so, evangelicals, I think, have to rethink the whole birth control issue, which is bigger than contraception. And I think we have to be very clear. We can't accept the culture of death. We cannot accept an antinatalist mentality. We can't accept uh, the birth control mentality. It simply says we're sovereign over this. We will determine how many, whether we're going to have children. You know. And, and by the way, when the pill was developed, it was legally prescribed only for whom? Married women. That didn't last long. You know, and, and, and so, in other words, as a, as a Christian theologian, I have to say, all this was predictable. And it's because, remember yesterday we talked about the division of goods? That's a major problem. We don't think about that. But, but there's a basic biblical reality that many Christians have never been taught, and that is you can't divide God's goods without moral harm. And so you divide the unitive and the procreative uh, function of sex, and you create problems. And, uh, and clearly, if, if, for instance... The pill became the greatest assist to extramarital sex in human history. 
because it largely removed the consequences, which then removed uh, even the conscience of worrying about whether or not she was pregnant. So all this happened. Christians just bought into it, evangelicals, and they're having to rethink it. And, and we're not rethinking it really well. It's like I have students come to me all the time and say, I'm just going to trust the sovereignty of God. All right, well, I trust the sovereignty of God. And by the way, trusting it or not trusting it, the sovereignty of God is going to happen. Okay? You trusting it's very nice, but God's not asking for your trust in His sovereignty at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and they'll say, so we're never going to use the pill. We're never going to use any form of birth control. We're never going to do anything. And I say, are you healthy? Yes. Your wife healthy? I said, well, welcome to uh, 13 or 14 kids because that's about what you can expect. And they say, well, if God gives it, that was it. Well, you know, the funny thing is I meet them 20 years later. Most of them don't have 14 kids. Uh, and by the way, the oldest form of birth control is not having sex. Some of you will get that about dinner time. And, uh, yeah. But, that, I mean, that's absolutely true. So when you saw healthy couples who weren't having kids before the advent of birth control, they were regulating it by not having sex or by following something like the Roman Catholic uh, technique of so-called natural family planning, which, by the way, once you actually understand it, doesn't look quite so natural. I don't mean to slander against it. I respect their moral convictions lead them to want to do that. But, but it's, it's not exactly natural in that sense that we would want to use it either. But it is not artificial in the sense that it's using a technology. Well, then, then so uh, this is a big question. So then you, you work it all the way down and you say, all right, there's certain things that you can't do, okay? Can we agree that? There's certain things that violate the sanctity of human life. You can't have an abortion. And you can't use anything, the most likely result of which is an abortion, so in other words, I will say to Christians, yes, I believe it is sin to use a form of birth control, the likely effect of the technology being an early-term abortion or the, the unsuccessful implantation of a fertilized egg in the uterine wall. And there are certain things like that is how the IUD used to work. We're told maybe it doesn't work that way now. I don't know. How about the oral pill? Well, the oral pill, most people think, works by preventing fertilization, but they're not actually sure because there's not actually a way to know that. And if you actually look at the PDR and you look at the warnings that are given with the oral contraceptive, it says one possible effect is an abortion. All right? Maybe they have to put it in there for legalese. I don't know. But what I'm telling you is you divide the unitive and the procreative, you're bringing in moral risk. There's greater moral risk and there's lesser moral risk. I'm not saying that a Christian couple that uses the pill is sinning. I am saying you need to very carefully think this through and, and you want to limit what moral harm and moral risk you bring into your life, your discipleship, and your marriage. We have to see children as an undiluted gift. You know, we can't ever buy into the mentality that children are something to be avoided. But at the same time, I don't believe that a couple is obligated to maximize the total number of children they could have. Now, I'd rather live in that world than in the antinatal world, but nonetheless, it's not obligated obligated. It's not an, an obligation for us. So in, in terms of, of contraception, I would say that, that uh, you know, if, if, if we had a Christian pharmacist who was distributing actual contraceptives, then that wouldn't be a moral issue. It might be a judgment issue, but it's not, it's not a moral issue. But if we had a Christian working in an abortion clinic, that would be an urgent moral issue. Where between those two there's a gray area Fear and trembling requires us to be in constant communication and understanding exactly what we're, what we're actually dealing with. Um, I mean, you're in this field, so I'm, I'm certainly not going to dictate terms to you. You probably know so much more in terms of what you're dealing with. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just would stay as far away as I could from moral risk. Um, 
seeking at the same time to do the, as, as much good as we can. And, and this means that for Christians, there are new questions, such as, can you be a Christian pharmacist? Well, I think you should be able to be a Christian pharmacist, but I can tell you in the state of Illinois, it's very difficult to be a Christian pharmacist because there is no conscience clause that, I, thanks to governor or ex-governor, current felon Blagojevich, um, by the way, I was doing live radio when I was handed that news, and I just had to talk about it. Unfortunately, I had not premeditated. I'd better figure out how to pronounce his name. And I had never heard Blagojevich before, so with apologies to the governor, I'm not even sure how it came out, but his first day in office, he removed the conscience um, uh, clause for uh, medical personnel uh, there in, uh, in Illinois. So can you be a nurse? Well, yes, of course you can be a nurse, but I don't think you can be a Christian nurse and work for Planned Parenthood. Uh, can you work in a hospital that also offers abortions? Well, I could see where that might be uh, possible, but not if you're actually involved in the giving of abortions. Well, then there's no conscience clause, and she can't. In other words, you need this. This is not something that I can stipulate from the from the platform. This is something where the body of Christ is going to have to work with individual Christians and say, given what we know on the basis of the Word of God, this is exactly what is given to the church in Matthew chapter 16 with the power of the keys and binding and loosing. It's exactly, it is not given to Peter in Rome. It is given to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is on the, on the basis of Scripture to bind and loose Christians. You can do that. You must not do that. And uh, that's going to require a lot of work. Yeah, I was uh, curious on your views on capital punishment. You want to go? Well, Genesis 6 through 9, I mean, it's, uh, it's clearly... Um, executed in the Old Testament, and it's even uh, it's regulated. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was to make sure you didn't go too far, not to make sure that you did anything. Um, and and Romans 13 says that you, the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. Sword weren't for for you know trimming your fingernails; uh, they were for the execution of of justice. Um, uh, I I think that that's clearly what the scriptures teach. And yet, if someone was on death row, I would want to be locked in a cell with them to tell them the gospel as, as clearly as I could. He, he's written probably four books on it, so he can probably tell you way more. I'm, I'm going to get in trouble. I don't think we're a, a country that can execute people anymore. I, I went on the Larry King show so many times to defend. I, I got more hate mail defending the death penalty than anything else. I'm still going to defend it because, it's, I mean, you're exactly right. You have the Noahic Covenant. and. Do you realize that the death penalty in the Scripture is to affirm the sanctity of human life? Yeah. Uh, and what you have in the Noahic Covenant is if you take another's blood, then you're required to forfeit your own. And so when we talk about the death penalty, let me say that in Scripture, in the continuation of, of the law, I'm going to reserve this conversation for death penalty for premeditated murder. I'm not going to assume we're going to go back to Victorian Britain and execute 12-year-old shoplifters, okay, which happened. So let's talk about the execution of capital murders of, 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 of those who commit premeditated murder. We should be a society that executes premeditated murderers. We certainly should be. Uh, otherwise, we are depreciating the sanctity of human life. And, of course, in the Scripture, the very clear guidelines that the death penalty can only be applied under certain circumstances and with overwhelming evidence of guilt. You know, look at how many witnesses were necessary in the Old Testament in order for the death penalty uh, to be conducted. But we're not a society that can do it anymore uh, because we've lost the moral will. 
Remember that in the Scripture, the death penalty is to preserve the sanctity of human life and to be a warning. It's very clear is to be a warning to others. And uh, so, for instance, right now, the, one of the safest places to be in the world is on death row because we have so separated the crime from its punishment that it's lost moral rationality. In other words, it's no longer seen as cause and effect. And so we've got that problem. We also have a moral problem we have to put on the table. No one who is white and rich in America is going to be executed, even if he commits the same crime as someone who is poor and black. That, according to Scripture, is a perversion of justice. And that is to say, we're no longer a society that can execute rich people because we have allowed so many technicalities into the law that if you can buy a smart enough lawyer who can work hard enough in terms of evidence and forensics, it can make it almost impossible for someone to be convicted of, 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 of a crime that will lead to capital murder. So that's a perversion of justice. So what I'm going to tell you is, I still believe as much in capital punishment as I ever did. I, I believe a lot less in America as a nation committed to justice, able to pull this off in a way that meets a biblical expectation. So I am morally conflicted on this. I am growing weary of defending the death penalty in America as America is today and as the death penalty is, to, is today, but I will continue to contend for the death penalty on behalf of the sanctity of human life as it is revealed in Scripture. Now, on the sanctity of human life, this is thrown at us continually. I will also tell you that, that uh, you know, it's not necessarily a meaningful punishment, so we're going to have to decide what we're going to do with this. It is costing, it, it is slowing down the, uh, the justice system to the perversion of the entire justice system. And for that reason, I think the death penalty is short-lived. I, I, I think you will have probably a judicial uh, relief from the issue such that it is just taken off the table because the justice system is breaking down under all the levels of appeals and, uh, and tests. Uh, and so, hear me clearly. The Bible says that any people who understand the sanctity of human life will execute the one who by his own volition takes another human life. But we're living in a society that is so receded from the Christian worldview it doesn't know how to handle anything like this anymore, and I'm not certain we're a society that can pull this off. I'm certain the way it's ha being handled right now is not meeting biblical expectations. How did that become a state issue instead of a federal issue? Well, because almost all these crimes are state crimes. Murder is very rarely a federal crime, only under very restricted circumstances. Terrorists, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and we want most of it. Our federalism's a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we want most of these crimes to be state crimes rather than federal crimes. Um, so that's why it's a state-by-state -state issue. And they execute whether or not they would go to the death penalty or not. The state. Would that's right. The state. A federal death penalty is about three clauses, and it's very hard to, you know. Basically, you have to be. Uh, I, th I think the last person most of us would think about would be. I'm sorry, I forgot his name, but the bomber in Oklahoma City. McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh, I think, was the last person you know executed under that that system. Thank you, men, for your insight and your encouragement. Obviously, you've spent a lot of time and thank uh, you for the books. thinking these things. Yeah, my gift to you, absolutely. <laughs> I actually took these from your office, um, so I'm going to give them away. Can we thank these men for just their clarity and their helpfulness, biblically?